We're turning another corner today. Uh, We waved our hands at it last time. I mentioned last time that the book of Job is divided up into different sections. There's a prologue which talks about God's interaction with Satan and the the, uh, background of all the events of the book. Uh, about halfway through chapter 2 all the way through um, chapter 31 is the dialogue section where the three friends debate with Job on the reasons behind the suffering in his life. And uh, now uh, we again put a period at the end of that section and start a new paragraph, uh, a new character entering the scene. And it's interesting, I don't know how you picture Job, but as this whole book has developed... I picture Job sitting outside the city on the ash heap. He's an outcast of society. He is uh, very much unclean because of his condition. He would have been rejected by uh, the the society and culture that he was in. So he's basically sitting out on the dump of the city uh, in the ash heap, um, suffering in his condition. And his friends have come and have sought to minister to him, and they did fine for the first week when they kept their mouth shut. And then we've seen chapter after chapter after chapter of um, perhaps good intentions, but really bad theology and the detrimental effect that it's had. Um, I cannot tell you how, um, how striking it continues to be to me when Job says, if you guys keep this up, I might totally lose any hope in God that I have. And uh, that's just a sobering warning for us uh, when we seek to minister and help friends. Um, Sincerity is not the criteria of godliness as we come alongside friends. Um, A pure heart combined with wise, gentle counsel is what God is looking for. And I've talked to some of you, and I, and I, I confess I feel like this too. After you read Job, you, you kind of go, well, I'm never going to say anything to anybody who's suffering. You know, I don't want to mess them up. And, and yet that's why we need Elihu. That's why we need Elihu. Because Elihu is going to come in, and he's going to do something that all of the other friends have not been able to do. Now, I'm not saying right now he's a model to follow, as you'll see. Right out of the gate, this guy has some issues. Um, but in terms of the counsel that he gives... He's much more careful. He's much more gentle. Um, And and I trust, based on the fact that God does not rebuke him with the other three friends at the end of the book, that the essence of what he said was right on. Okay? So, again, I don't know if you picture this. The three friends out, they're sitting in the ash heap. There's Job. And remember, Job is barely unrecognizable, right? His skin has been blackened because of this condition. Um, He's completely... Uh, malnourished. You can see the bones in his body a number of times. We've read that. All you can see is kind of this bony frame. He has sores covering his body that are infected with um, bacteria and um, uh, even um, things like worms and and, uh, disgusting things like that. Um, He is is so affected by his condition that that when his friends show up, the text actually says they didn't recognize him at first. They questioned whether or not the report they had heard was accurate because this didn't look like their friend. 
But the picture is going to change today because the three friends in Job are not the only ones there. In fact, we saw a couple of weeks ago his family has come a number of times and has rejected him. All of the people of the city that used to look up to him and, and used to go to him for counsel. Remember we read that about Job's past? Well, they don't want anything to do with him now. So as people are coming and seeing Job, they are rejecting and rejecting and rejecting him. And, and one by one, all of his peers, all of his family members have left him. But there's another person in the mix. There's a young man who apparently has been sitting with Job and the three other friends from the beginning because as we get to know Mr. Elihu here, uh, it's very obvious that he has been here and heard all of the things that Eliphaz and Zophar and Bildad have said. And uh, so we're going to jump into this section. Um, when, uh, when you open the Gospels, okay, you open the Gospels, God specifically designed a person to come to prepare the way for Jesus, didn't he? Okay, What was the man's name whose whole ministry revolved around preparing the way for Jesus? What was his name? Okay. And when he showed up, tell me about what he was saying. Repent. Okay? You need to repent. You need to prepare for, for Christ, for the Messiah coming. And, and a lot of times, the people that heard him said, Are you the Christ? And he would say, No, no, no. I'm the one who... What? Good. Prepares the way. Okay. And as I thought about that, I think that's the function of Elihu in this book. The function of Elihu is to prepare the way for God stepping on the scene in a couple of chapters. Okay? He's going to say a lot of the same things that God says, just like John the Baptist. He's going to come and warn the people, as it were, to tell them, you need to be ready for what's going to happen. And as I've studied Elihu, as I've thought about his function in the book, I think that's what he does. He is the John the Baptist of the book of Job. He is preparing the way for God and, and the vision of God that starts um, in just a few chapters away. So keep that in mind. Uh, Elihu is the John the Baptist of Job, and that will help you to see the function that he plays here. Look at chapter 32, verse 1. Let's, let's jump in with both feet here and, and get right into it. Uh, then these uh, three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But the anger of Elihu, the son of uh, Barakal, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned against Job. His anger burned because he justified himself before God. And his anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet they had condemned Job. As I talked about last time, that's very, very significant. That's not Elihu talking. That's not Job talking. That's not the three friends talking. Who, who is speaking in the first uh, three or four verses there of chapter 32? Who is it? It's the narrator. Now, any time you're reading a story in the Bible and the narrator starts to speak, what should you do? You should pay attention. Okay? Why should you pay attention when the narrator speaks? One of the hardest things with narrative is interpreting it, right? Because you may see somebody and they may do something and you go, was that a good thing? What he did? 
When, when David does something or when John does something or when the disciples do something or, or um, Abraham does something or Moses, and, and you go, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And, and a lot of times we're kind of on the fence, aren't we? I mean, if it's clear sin, we go, okay. But other times we go, hmm, I don't know about that. And that's why narrative can be very, very dangerous. That's why narrative can be very, very um, troublesome because we, we don't ever want to take what a person does and say, oh, yeah, this is a great model to follow if we're not sure it is a good model to follow. Uh, one of my former pastors is always saying, don't turn description into prescription. You know, don't, don't take something the Bible tells you that just happened and say, oh, yeah, that's what we should do. Um, we would want to test that with other scriptures that are more didactic, that, that tell us, do this, don't do that, and then use those scriptures to evaluate what happens in the narrative. But occasionally, God gives us these wonderful, wonderful blessings called the narrator's commentary. And the narrator helps us with this. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned the parable uh, that Jesus shared about the um, the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? And And we have this problem with with parables too. You go, what does that mean? And that particular parable is wonderful because uh, Dr. Luke tells us from the beginning, now Jesus told this story to some who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous and were viewing others with contempt. You don't have to guess what the parable is about because he just told us. And then you just read it with that interpretive uh, thought in mind and then you can go to the races there. So but, but listen to this. This is, this is the narrator's commentary on what has happened. He tells us, in a sense, the two problems that are going on here. The first problem is a problem with Job. And, and tell me, what does the narrator tell us is the problem with Job so far? What is it? He's righteous in his own eyes. He is seeking to justify himself. He is seeking to say, um, who I am in and of myself, is sufficient. Is sufficient before God, according to verse 2. He's self-righteous. He's trusting in himself that he's righteous. What about the friends? What's the problem with the friends? Okay. They're condemning Job, but they can't prove it. They've gone around and around and around, you know, on this on this secret sin hunt, right? They're looking for some secret sin in his life, and they can't come up with anything. And in fact, Job is showing them by experience that their theology is wrong. So there's two problems here. One is that Job is trusting in himself, and in the process is calling God unjust. And the other ones, the other problem is that the friends are condemning Job. And their theology is shown to be incorrect. Why is this important? I mentioned a book that uh, David Gibson and I have really found to be helpful. Would not recommend this book because there's so much in it that is not right. But on this point, on this point, it's worth the price of the book. The narrators of the biblical stories are, of course, omniscient. And that theological term transferred to narrative technique has special justification in their case. Now listen, for the biblical narrator is presumed to know quite literally what God knows. As on the occasion, he may remind us by reporting God's assessments or intentions or even what he says to himself. The biblical prophet speaks in God's name, thus saith the Lord. 
as a highly visible human instrument for God's message, which often seems to seize him against his will. But the biblical narrator, quite unlike the prophet, divests himself of a personal history and the marks of individual identity in order to assume for the scope of his narrative a godlike comprehensiveness of knowledge that encompasses even God himself. Um, spoken like a uh, literary professor, which is what he is. Um, but what is he saying? He's saying the narrator speaks God's perspective. The narrator speaks with divine omniscience. And so he helps us to see what God's perspective is, and he brings insight that only God could have uh, as one of the inspired authors of the test. Yes, sir? Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. You know, and I, I yeah, that's that's a that's a good question. Um, you know, the, the three friends have said all but the same thing. I mean, they've already said that, so we could certainly take it like that. But the focus of the narrator in chapter thirty-two is not on the friend's assessment of Job. It's on Job's condition. So I, w- I would take it in the former of what she said, that he's saying Job is self-righteous in his own eyes. The friends saw that and agreed with that, but the narrator's point is more that, yes, that's really what's going on. Yeah, I would take it like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, good question. Okay, so let's, uh, let's jump in here and, and uh, see how we do here. Elihu's speech is going to go from chapter 32 to chapter 37, it's interesting, a couple of times in the process, he's going to say, do you want to speak? No, be quiet. And, and you'll see it here, and, and it's really kind of, kind of entertaining. Um, well, let's just jump in. Let's, let's just jump in here. Elihu is younger than Job and his friends. Look at cha- uh, chapter 32, verse 4. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he, and he's following what is respectful, what is uh, particularly cultural, cult- uh, culturally significant, that um, you didn't speak out of turn if you were the younger guy. So he has waited for a pause in the conversation. And as we have seen for chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, there haven't been a whole lot of pauses in the conversation so far. So finally, everybody runs out of words. And Elihu says, here's my chance. But he's waited uh, to speak because he's younger. Um, He summarizes Job's complaint against God. Look at chapter... uh, Where are we here? Actually, before we get to that, let's just just look at this here. Look at verse 3. His anger... uh, 32. His anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now Elihu had waited to speak uh, to Job because they were years older than him. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three... Man, his anger burned. Uh, This is an angry young man. It says something like three or four times this guy was angry. And um, young men never have a problem with frustration with older people when they think they're wrong, do they? Just, again, you know, the honesty of the book is wonderful, you know. Uh, Here's a guy. We don't know how old he is. He's younger uh, than everybody else. Remember, Job's probably in his 60s or early 70s. The other... 
men, the three men, are older than him, so they're probably in their uh, mid to late 70s, if not into their 80s. And um, I don't know if this was some kid just out of high school or if this is you know, someone more in their 40s or 50s, but the point is he's younger, he's very angry because he thinks Job and the three friends are wrong. And the first time I read this, I went, come on, man, get to the point. He's going to spend the first whole chapter saying, I want, to have, I want to say something here. And he's going to spend a whole chapter saying, I want to say something here. Watch what I mean. Verse 6, so Elihu, the son of Barakal the Buzite, spoke out and said, I am young in years and you are old. Therefore, I was shy and afraid to tell you what I thought. I thought age should speak and increased years should teach wisdom. But it is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. And that kind of reflects back to the wisdom chapter, doesn't it? The abundant in years may not be wise, nor may elders understand justice. That makes me think of uh, Psalm 119. Uh, It's in the 98-99 range where the psalmist says, I have more insight than all my teachers because you... God yourself have taught me. Verse 10, So I say, listen to me. I too will tell you what I think. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasoning while you were pondering what to say. I even paid close attention to you. Indeed, there was no one who refuted Job. Not one of you who answered his words. Right now, he's he's talking to the three friends, isn't he? Verse 13, Do not say, we have found wisdom, for God will rout him and not man. For he has not arranged his words against me, nor will I reply to him with your arguments. For they are dismayed. They answer no more. Words have failed them. He says they they finally have run out of words. They finally have nothing more to say. Verse 17, So I too will answer my share. I also will tell my opinion. For I am full of words. Yeah, we can see that. (laughs) The Spirit... Sorry, I couldn't resist. Um... The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like unvented wine, like new wineskins. It is about to burst. Let me speak that I may get relief. Let me open my lips and answer. Let me now be partial to no one, nor flatter any man, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. Okay, so the whole chapter is Job is, is Elihu saying, I want to talk here. I got something I want to say. And at first I read that and I thought, man, what a waste of space, you know? But I read more about the culture, and you just didn't go rebuke your elders. You just didn't do that. So I'm thinking, one, he's probably a little nervous here, and sometimes when people are nervous, they tend to ramble. But the other thing is, I really think, at the end of the day, he's just trying to be very, very careful to qualify what he's going to say and why he's saying it. And I don't know that that's a bad thing. Verse 30, chapter 33, verse 1. However, now Job... Okay, now he turns from the friends to Job, okay? Please hear my speech and listen to all my words. Behold, now I open my mouth. My tongue in my mouth speaks. My words are from the uprightness of my heart, and my lips speak knowledge sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Refute me if you can. Array yourselves before me. Take your stand. Behold, I belong to God like you. I too have been formed out of the clay. Behold, no fear of me should terrify you, nor should my pressure weigh heavily on you. 
And then here's where the substance starts, okay? Verse 8. Surely, Job, you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words. Colon. Okay, you see the editors have added a colon because Elihu is saying, Job, I've heard you speak, I've heard what you've said, and now he's going to give a summary of what Elihu has heard Job say. Some of these are direct quotes, some of them are simply a summary. Verse 9, here's what Elihu has heard Job say. I am pure, I am without transgression, I am innocent, and there is no guilt in me. Behold, he invents, God, invents pretexts against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks, and he watches all my paths. Okay, so that's the summary of what Elihu has heard Job to say so far. Tell me about that summary. What do you see there? What's, what's he saying there? Isn't it? It's a pretty good summary. So tell me the elements there, the summary that you see. What are, what are the key elements there that you would say that pop out at you? He is justifying himself. Okay. Yeah, he's saying he's without sin. He's innocent. God's after him. Job knows more than God. What, what about verse 10? He invents pretexts against me. Now, literally, he finds things that are wrong against me. And the implication is, but those aren't justified. God invents things against Job in order to justify God's treatment of him. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But isn't, and this is what struck me, isn't the way Elihu puts it a lot more gentler than the other friends? We think your kids sin and they got what coming, what's coming to them. You go, what? And he has a way, he has a way of summarizing. I agree with you, Bill. It's an excellent summary. But he has a way of saying it to where you know what he's saying, but it's really gentle. Well, it probably is both. You know, I don't. I don't think he's. I don't think he's using innuendo or beating around the bush, which I don't think would be good. But he's being gentle, and, and that's good. Verse twelve. Verse twelve. After that gentle summary, he says this: "Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this. Why? For God is greater than man. Underline it." Highlight it, star it, circle it. Peel back that, that page of your Bible and fold it over. Okay? Did you see that? In one sentence, in, not even a sentence, in one phrase, one clause, he shows Job the problem. You're not, you're not, you're not, are you with me? You, here's the deal, Job, you ready? God's greater than you. And it's amazing. In, in one little clause, Job puts his finger on the problem. 
I mean, there's lots of extraneous stuff. There's lots of stuff that connects back. But that's the issue, isn't it? Isn't the issue Job is saying, I know better than God. Complaint. Summarizes Job's complaint. Yeah. And here's, here's why I call Elihu the John the Baptist of Job. Okay? What's God going to say in a few chapters? You've been reading ahead. See, I know, I know you guys. What's God going to say? Who do you think you are, man? That's the Keith paraphrase. Right? Do you really think that you know better than I do? God says to Job. And see, Elihu is, is paving that way. He, he's, he's creating the path so that by the time God steps on the scene, it's all going to make sense. God is greater than man. And because that is true, if, if, if Elihu had said nothing else, I, I think it would have been uh, totally, totally helpful to them. Because God is greater than man, verse 13, okay? Why do you complain against him? That word complain, does it say complain in your Bible, verse 13, complain? Uh, that's... Uh, it can mean that, but it has a technical sense that I, f- I think fits the context better. In the technical sense, it means to pursue a legal suit. So he's saying, Job, you're not right. God's greater than you. And if that's true, why do you want to sue him? Why do you want to take him to court? Verse 13, that he does not give an account of all his doings? Tell me about that one. This is going to be one of those read it and think about it messages, okay? So we're just going to read a little bit and we're going to think about it and talk about it. God doesn't discuss what he wants to do with us sometimes. Wes? That's right. Yeah, David. Right. That's right. That's right. And and Elihu really goes after both of those points, doesn't he? He says, first of all, you're not greater than God, so that's not your role to evaluate whether you agree with God or not. But the latter half of 13, what he's saying is, God does not owe us an explanation. Now, stop. When we're suffering, when we're suffering, I don't know about you, but where I go, almost always the first place I go is to say, why? Right? 
Is that where you go to? Why? Why is this happening? Why am I going through this? Why is that happening to so-and-so? Why is that going through there? And, And again, I think in a very gentle way, Elihu says, God doesn't owe us an explanation. We read it in Psalm 115. Our Lord is in the heavens, and He does what? Whatever He pleases. Um, I mentioned in my sermon last week, just kind of think of it like, like, like a father and, and a young child. And, and I just I, I go back to that. Tell me what it would be like if everything I did on just one day of my life, I tried to explain to my two-year-old. Right? Let's call this exercises in futility, right? <laughs> um, that's the picture. Not only, I think, are we not in a position to understand the mind of God a lot of the time, what, let me ask you this, what is it that makes us conclude that God owes us an explanation for what he does? What is that? Yeah. That's right. And what is that? It's pride. What, what's Job's problem? What's his problem? He's trusting in himself. What's that? That's a form of pride. Pride says, I think I'm great in basketball, in school, in this, and I'm thinking more highly of myself than I ought to think. Self-righteousness is when I take that attitude and I think about my stance as a person before God. Self-righteousness is a narrow form of pride where I say, I am justified in myself before God. And that's the problem. Job is living here in his self... Tell me, what what does the Bible say about pride? Probably the most common thing the Bible says about pride. When you are in pride, when you are in self-righteousness, you can't do what? Well, lots of things. That was really bad. I'll just tell you. You can't see. Pride is blinding. Pride is what keeps you from seeing what everybody else in your life sees. And what's gone on here is as as Job has tightened his grip on his own self-righteousness, he's not seeing straight. And he's actually got to the place where he's saying, I think God owes me an explanation for how he runs his universe. And as David said, and I think I'll decide whether I like that or not. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because he doesn't like the judgment that God has. 
Very good. Yes. Hmm. Hmm. That's good. Very good. That's very well said, and I, I like the uh, tweaking of the courtroom analogy. You're right on there. Now watch what he does. And by the way, yeah, see, I know you guys have been reading ahead. Uh huh. Um, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Any of you know that? The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed. The word of God, his, his law, belong to the sons of man. Right? That's a good verse to keep in mind. There, there are some things that God says are secret and he will not tell us. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Okay. Now, now watch this. Um, <clears throat> verse 13, he says, Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? And then, <laughs> chapter 14, Elihu says, But you know what? God does speak. Praise God that he does reveal himself to us. He's not totally silent. And he's going to give, and this is interesting, he's going to give two ways that God speaks here. What's the first way? Verse 15. In a dream, in a vision of the night, which in this time, in biblical revelation, that was one of the ways that God spoke, right? He would, uh, not, not regularly, not, it was, this wasn't a normal thing for everybody, but occasionally God would reveal revelation to a person through a vision or dream. We think of Daniel, we think of uh, Abraham, we think of people like that. Um, And he's saying God does speak sometimes, and we should be thankful for that. Uh, Living on this side of the canon being closed, we could say, well, God does speak. How does he do it? He does it right here in his word. Uh, We'll come back and talk about that thought in a minute, but here's what I want to focus on today. Look at verse 19. How else does God speak? Verse 19. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed. You ready for this? God speaks in dreams and visions in that time. He also speaks through suffering. Now, you with me? That's brand new. No one has ever said in the book thus far, God is speaking through suffering. Back up a couple verses and look at the section where he talks about God revealing himself through dreams and visions. Look at what it says there. Uh, Verse 16, Then he opens the ear of men and seals their instruction. Why is he revealing himself? Verse 17, That he may turn man aside from his conduct and keep man from pride. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from passing. You ready? It's preventative. 
God's speaking in that context is preventative. Look at verse 19. He also speaks through suffering. Man is also chastened with pain in his bed and with unceasing complaint in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his soul his favorite food. Isn't that true, right? That's exactly what happens in suffering. Verse 21. His flesh wastes away from sight and his bones which were not seen stick out. That's Job, right? Then his soul draws near to the pit and his life to those who bring death. Why? Look at verse 29. Skip the little section there and look down to 29. Behold, God does all these things oftentimes with men to bring back his soul from the pit, ready? That he may be enlightened with the light of life. God speaks through suffering as a preventative measure to keep us from sin and from death. Let's catch up on the outline here. He insists that Job is wrong because God is greater than man. He challenges Job's legal ambitions against God and his assumption that God owes him an explanation for everything he does. You got those? And he insists that God does speak. That's where we're at now, right? God speaks through dreams and visions and through suffering. Why? In order to prevent sin and death. Listen to D.A. Carson in his book, How Long, O Lord, which has a whole chapter on, uh, on Job in it that I'm finding to be very helpful. Listen to Carson. Here is a chastening use of suffering that may be independent of some particular sin. Did you get that? In the theology of the three friends, the suffering is because Job already has some sin in his life. Elihu is saying, and Carson is bringing out, that may not be the case. It may be preventative. It may be to do something in us that will save us from some sin down the road. Do you see that? And I think Carson nails it here. He says, here is a chastening use of suffering that may be independent of some particular sin. Its purpose may be preventative. It can stop a person, I love this, from slithering down the slope to destruction. And you know what? Because we've read the end of the book. That's exactly what's going on. This isn't about some sin that Job had that's hidden. This is about a work that God wants to do in Job's heart that's preventative. Do you see that? And that's, that's what he's getting at here. He's saying it, it doesn't have anything to do with, with current sin. It's preventative. And let's summarize that, okay? Sometimes God has to take you to the edge of the pit in order to save you from it. That's what he says. He says, I have this pain in chastening with my, uh, and chastened with pain on his bed. Verse 19, his flesh wastes away, his bones stick out. Verse 22, his soul, his life is bring, being drawn near to the pit. His life is being brought close to death. Why? To save him from future destruction. It's preventative. 
sometimes God has to take us to the edge in order to save us from it. Or say it a different way. In other words, Job's suffering is a means of his own rescue. Do you see that? Are you with me? We can't go anywhere else till you get this, okay? The suffering that's going on in his life, God says through Elihu, is a means of his own rescue. Yes? Suffering is God's educational dealing with us. Yes, that's, I think that's what he's saying here. Okay. Now, I know there's a, a dozen unanswered questions because we skipped that little middle section, which if you read it, is about a mediator. I need another week to figure out what that means. Okay. But I do know this. I do know this. Elihu has put his finger on the issue. Um, God is greater than man. Job is out of line before God in how he's dealing with him. And he says to Job, you know what? This suffering isn't about some current sin. It's about God's rescue plan to save you from yourself. To save you down the road. We'll come back next time and see how that works. Okay? More news at 10. Let's pray.